Well, this morning we're going to be continuing to look at chapter 3 of Titus, looking at verses, uh, the end of verse 1 and beginning of verse 2 this morning. The key to, the key to Christian living in, in a world like ours, and what I'll title is a, a mad, mad world, and I mean that in more sense than one, uh, crazy as well as angry, the key to, to Christian living in a mad, mad world is to remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Remember that God sent Jesus to be your savior, that he opened your spiritual eyes and that God has given you faith to believe something that otherwise you would consider to be foolishness. That God has forgiven all of your sins, not just the ones you've confessed or even not just the ones you've already committed, all of your sins. And God has given you eternal life. All of these gifts are things you don't deserve. You didn't earn, and God gave them by his matchless grace to you when you exercised faith in Jesus Christ. And to top that, God did all that while you were still his enemy, his enemy spiritually. Now, that point was driven deeper into me this past week and learning more about the life of Richard and Sabina Wormbrand. Richard and Sabina Warmbrand's endurance through the abuses and tortures of the communists in Romania are fairly well known. There's several. There's a movie about Richard and Tortured for Christ, as well as a book for that uh, by that same uh, name. Yet their life before that it was little known, at least to me. Their life during the Nazi years in Romania. At one point. Richard boldly evangelizes at the risk of his own life because he's a Jew, although he's converted. He's a believer in Christ and a Lutheran a pastor at this point. He, he seeks out a Romanian soldier who has uh, participated with the Nazi atrocities. Uh, he had participated in the massacre of thousands of Romanian Jews, and he had come back from the front. And so he was living in an apartment across the street from where Richard was at, and he was he was evangelizing everybody in that apartment building, including this um, Romanian soldier who was a, a Nazi sympathizer. And Richard had come to find out that that man participated, very well participated, in the massacre not only of thousands of Jews, but in Sabina's, but the massacre of Sabina's own family. Sabina's family was taken away, dragged away. All of them were taken somewhere and never heard from again. So, and he likely participated in the massacre of all those people. And Richard knew that. And Richard uh, invited him over to his house to give him hospitality. And as he began to evangelize this man, he revealed that this man suspected that Richard was a Jew, and he said, well, I am I'm a Jew, but I'm a Christian. And, and instantly, the, the soldier thought it was a trap to kill him. And Richard assured him it was not a trap. And as Richard told him that God could forgive him for all the atrocities that he had done, this man said, oh, there's, I don't believe in God. It can't be a God. And Richard said, oh, I'll, let's, let's take that to a test. All right? I'll show you that there's a God. The man said, how? Richard said, my wife is in the room, the next room over. This is at night. She's sleeping. She doesn't know you're here. She doesn't know anything about you. But I'm going to go into my wife. I'm going to wake her up. I'm going to tell her that there's a man in our living room who, has, who participated in killing her family. And I can tell you exactly what she will do. She will come out. She will greet you. And she will make you a meal and offer you hospitality. Richard goes in, wakes up Sabina, tells her that the man, the soldier, is in their house and that he participated in the killing of her family. What did she do? That's all he told her. What did she do? Exactly what Richard said she would do. She got up. She embraced the man, even hugging him. And then she fixed him a meal. How many of us could do that? 
Not me. Not my own strength. And not you. And when I think about how God loves us, even while we were yet enemies, it's simply overwhelming. And God used us to break through to him. And that's the power of the gospel. Not only to save, not only to forgive, but the power to transform. There's no way Sabina could have done that on her own, in her own strength. And some of you have experienced circumstances like that. When the power of God comes upon you to help you to do something you know you could have never done. Forgiveness, offering of love. You could have never done that without his help. When Christ comes to live in your life, he changes everything. Some parts quickly, some parts slowly. Yet not one room of your life will be unaffected. God knows about all the areas of your, the life, the house of your life that, and the areas that need to be clean. And he will clean them. And that's the thrust and theme of Titus. That when God saves you, it changes you. You can't go on living like you used to or like the world does. God, when he makes you your child, makes you his child, begins transforming you so that you're like him. And Titus chapter 3 continues on this theme by providing us especially in verses 1 to 2, seven healthy habits that must characterize your response to and interactions with those outside your church so that you honor Christ and maximize and enhance your witness. And remember, these aren't things you just you just externally force upon yourself. You know, you, you pull yourself out by the bootstrap, so to speak, and force yourself to do them. These things are to flow from a, a heart that's transformed. What are these seven healthy habits we looked at? Be subject to your governing authorities and be obedient to your governing authorities are the ones we covered last week. And today we're going to look at two more. Be ready for every good deed and don't malign anyone. These come straight from Titus 3. And we're, we're going to read verses 1 and 2 together just to remind ourselves of what it says. There Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, remind them to be subject to rulers to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now, remember what we talked about last week, being subject to your governing authorities. Christians are called to willingly submit themselves to civil authorities who hold some form of governmental power over us. And this submission is not just given to worthy authorities over us looking to jesus as our example we are to submit ourselves even to unworthy evil leaders and and yet as we talked about we must never yield to sin in doing so secondly we we looked at the fact that we are called to be obedient to governing authorities titus was to remind them this is something they'd already been taught he was to remind them that they are to be obedient to governing authorities paul taught the church to be obedient which is uh, kind of the natural implication of submission. It's kind of interesting. You can force somebody to obey you externally. That happens sometimes with your kids. They will do what you want them to do when they're young. But all the while, their will is rebelling. You know, it's like the little boy who's sitting down while the inside, he said, on the inside, I'm standing up, but I'm sitting down. All right, so externally, I'm obeying, but inside, I'm rebelling. So submission is that internal. The obedience is the external. And... It, it is, uh, as Diamond Hebert explains, to be obedient is the result and visible demonstration of the attitude of submission. So we looked at all that last week, and we want to we want to we want to build on that. I remember too that we we looked at the fact that that this isn't a call to be um, obedient, to be subject and obedient in everything, um, because there are things that the government will tell us that will violate the will of God. 
either in how we interact with him or how we interact with others or even how we interact um, with our own our own life. That is the things that he holds us responsible for. Only God has absolute authority. Government does not have absolute authority. Uh, governmental orders have no divine authority when they speak to matters that belong to the sphere of personal authority or the sphere of marital authority or the sphere of parental authority or the sphere of employer authority or the sphere of church authority. If the church tells you you can't use corporal punishment on your children, you have to look at the Word of God, which tells you to do it, the government, and say, no, nah, I can't listen to my government in that area. If the government tells the church they can't meet, the church has to say, no, we can't listen to you. We have to obey God rather than man. So, and yet when we do that, when we, when we have to disobey what our governing authorities are telling us, we must be respectful in how we disobey. We must be willing to bear the consequences in a, in a Christ-honoring way. Right? The government might uh, and often does overstep its boundaries and it punishes people who don't listen. So we could find ourselves uh, under the wrath of the government all the while we are at the same time um, praising our Lord and our God and being obedient to Him for obeying Him rather than man. So just just realize that, that these things have uh, boundaries. Only God has absolute authority. And we also looked at the fact uh, of, of why that we can do this. Why can we submit even to governments that are evil and that's because God's sovereign over all. God is sovereign over the rise of leaders. And God's even sovereign over the will of leaders. He moves their hearts just like channels of water in his hand. So all that is just a real brief review of those first two healthy habits to subject ourselves to governing authorities, to obey governing authorities. The third healthy habit that must characterize your response and inter interactions with those who are outside the church so that you honor our Lord and our God and, and so that you maximize your witness for him is that is this third one is to be ready for every good deed, to be ready for every good deed. Titus is to remind the Cretan believers that they are to be ready for every good deed or every good work. The phrase to be ready in this context means to be prepared. So when you say be ready, you're talking about be, be prepared to do something. It's a verb that, um, or an idea that appears multiple times in the scriptures. But I'd just like to point to some of these just to help us to, to uh, really understand what the scriptures are calling us to. In Matthew 22, 4, in a, a parable talking about uh, slaves, uh, talking about uh, um, he, he sent his slaves out. Jesus sent uh, the master in this parable, master sent his um, slaves out to, to gather in, invite people to, to a big feast. And he says in Matthew 22, 4, he says, Again, he sat down other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So when, when you're ready, you're, you're totally prepared for that event to happen. You, there's nothing further to do. And that's, that's in this parable. Uh, that's, that's what's being implied. People were invited. People were just to come. Um, in Matthew 24, 44, Jesus uses the same word to emphasize the fact that we must be ready for his return. We must be ready for judgment. We know not the day of his return. We know not the day of our death. So we must be ready. He says in Matthew 24, 44, for this reason, you must also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. And then in Matthew 25, 10, uh, again, in a parable about the um, uh, bridesmaids who and their, their lamps of oil and some had some had oil some did not some were ready some were not Matthew twenty five ten tells us that while they were going away to make a purchase that is the 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 brides uh, that were not the virgins that were did not have oil they were not ready they had to go purchase that and while they were going away to make the purchase the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Again, another parable emphasizing the fact that Jesus will come at an hour you do not expect, so you must be ready. Uh, this word ready is used again in, in the context of Paul's life in Acts twenty three fifteen. Remember when Paul was arrested by the Jews or arrested by the Romans and the Jews were plotting to kill him. It says in Acts 23.15, Now therefore you and the council 
notify the commander to bring him down to you. This is this is those Jews who had set themselves against Paul uh, to kill him, talking to the the leaders, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees in Jerusalem. He's, now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander and bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. So the Jews were were just feigning. They, they were trying to get the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders, to kind of coax uh, the Romans into allowing Paul uh, into another trial. I mean, the Lord intervenes and allows uh, one of Paul's relatives to hear hear what's going on and to report that to the Romans, uh, first to, uh, to Paul and then to the Roman centurion who then protected Paul. But, but the idea is, you know, it's the idea they were ready to slay him. They're ready to pounce. They, they had their plan together. They, they um, didn't know all the details, but they were ready to enact it, whether they would stone him um, or... Uh, whether they would cut his head off, all that was was uh, may may not have been determined, but they were ready. There was nothing lacking to do that. In First Peter one five, uh, talking about uh, the blessings that God pours upon us, Peter says that you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you, you get that understanding? Our full redemption, our full salvation is ready for you because of what Christ has done. It's not pending. It's ready for you. Right? Whether that comes at the day of your death or, or the Lord returns, either way, it is ready to be revealed in the last time. Nothing further to do. Right? That's why Jesus said it is finished. Uh, that same word is used again in First Peter 3.15 where Peter says, sanctify the Lord, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Right? So there's a, it's really a call for us to be ready to give the hope, to give a reason for the hope that is within us. You might know, you might not know all the answers uh, to the questions that somebody has if you're talking to them, evangelizing them. And that's a good way, actually, to force you to go learn some things and questions you probably hadn't thought of ahead of time. But you must always be ready to, to explain why it is that you have the hope that you do. That is, understanding the gospel and understanding why it is that that's good news and gives you hope. Being ready means that you're prepared to act immediately and that there's no pre-work needed on, on your heart. There might be things you might see something that needs to be done and you might have to go organize some type of help but but in your heart you are ready to take action you are ready to spring into action there's no reluctance on your part to take action so what are believers reminded to be ready and prepared for we are to be ready for good deeds we are ready for good works and the new american standard bible uses the translation every good deed uh, the legacy standard bible uses uses the translation every good uh, work um, a good a good deed is a good work, and a good work is a good deed. I'll use these terms interchangeably uh, because they uh, both accurately reflect the meaning of the Greek word. In a general sense, the word work refers to the exertion of strength or faculties, physical or intellectual effort directed toward an end. An exertion of strength or faculties, physical or intellectual effort directed toward an end. And yet Paul here isn't just referring to work in general, but to every what? Every good work. The, the word good describes that which is upright, what, honorable and acceptable to God. And thus the combined term good work refers to the upright, honorable efforts that result in attitudes and actions that are acceptable to God and beneficial to others. Right? Think about that. Good work refers to the upright, honorable efforts that result in attitudes and actions that are acceptable to God and beneficial to others. In a sense, you can you could think of good works or good deeds as a synonym for fruits. We talk about fruit um, in a spiritual sense, the fruit of our lives. So fruit or good works are the logical, spiritual, practical responses to having received the grace of God. And you can think of good works as, as uh, also think of good works as grace responses. How you respond to grace once it comes home and becomes resident in your life 
we are to be ready. Notice that, that Paul says, it's not that we're to be ready for good deeds or good works, but it's to be ready for every good deed. And Paul could have written to be ready for good works, and the meaning is, is essentially the same, but there is one nuance that, that comes through by the way that he wrote it here, by every good deed. Paul is not only emphasizing the collection of all the good deeds that, that we're to pursue in our lifetime, but he's he's really emphasizing that the individual good works or the individual good deeds that we are to pursue. John Kitchen explains that by writing it this way, Paul lays the stress upon each individual good work and thus demands readiness to perform whatever good deed might be called for in any given circumstance. And and uh, as you might have uh, re, you know recalled or or picked up on, there's quite a an emphasis on good works in the book of Titus. In, in Titus one six, you can just kind of let your uh, eyes glance through this as we reference them. In Titus one six, false teachers are said to be unfit for any good work, unfit for any good work. Younger men and pastors in particular are to be models of good works. In Titus two six. Then, um, you know, Jesus, uh, Titus says that Jesus gave himself uh, for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a, a people for his own possession, zealous for what? Zealous for good deeds. That's verse 14 of chapter 2. We are to be zealous for good deeds. Here we're looking at, in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, that we're to be ready for every good work. Look at verse 5. Christians are told we're not saved by our works. Even though this is something we're to be zealous about, we're to pursue vigorously or be ready for, we have to remember that we're not saved by our works. And then in Titus 3, 5, I mean, sorry, 3, 8, verse 8, we're told that those who have believed God will be, will be careful to engage in good deeds. And these things are good and profitable for men. And then in Titus 3, 14, we're told that Christians must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. So good works, the pursuit of good works is one of the major themes of the book of Titus. But Titus isn't alone in this, or the letter of Titus isn't alone. The wider context of scriptures also have much to teach us about good works. So good works can be thought uh, thought of as the work of the Lord. So when you pursue good works, you can think of it as the work of the Lord, the work of the Lord that you are pursuing. This is the work that God wants us to do in light of the victory over death that God gives us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just before speaking about the collection for the saints, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, 8. 1 Corinthians 15, 8. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So work, be steadfast, keep it up, do that work. It's the work of the Lord. It's the work the Lord has given you to do. And by the way, don't worry about the, the fruit of that work. Your job is just to do that work. The Lord brings fruit from that because he says, just keep on toiling. The Lord is, is watching. You will not toil in vain. The Lord will accomplish his work through you. We can also think, uh, we also realize the fact that the good works can be toilsome and may not yield immediate benefits, but are, but are nonetheless to be done for all people, especially for other believers, as God provides us the opportunities. We see this from Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10. Where there we read, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will, we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. From Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, we, we see that the good works are the result of God's providential care and nurture in the life of every believer. There we read Ephesians 2, 8, beginning of verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Then we see from Colossians 1 that good works are evidence that one is living a life worthy of and pleasing to the Lord, to our Lord and God, and, and is related to 
the knowledge of God. So when one knows God, one begins to do these works. There in Paul's prayer for the Colossians, he, re, he, um, he prays this or he writes, We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then from Titus, I'm sorry, from Second Timothy 2, we, we see that the foundation and preparation for good works come from intentionally abstaining from that which is dishonorable and cleansing ourselves in Christ through the washing of the word, which, which results in lives that are useful to the master. Second Timothy 2, I'll just read verses 20 and 21. Second Timothy 2, 20 and 21. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful, youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And then from 2 Timothy 3, in, in verses you know well, in verses 16, to 16 and 17, we see that the scriptures participate. They're, they're the tool of God that help equip us for these good works. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So God works in our lives to equip us through his word. And the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ himself, works in our lives to, to equip us in a personal sense through his spirit. Jesus, the great shepherd, is equipping you. In Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21, we read this. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So we can rightly summarize all of this as one commentator does by remembering that the call to be ready for every good deed is a call to live in such a way that the fruit of the new life in Christ is manifested in tangible ways. And let me read that again. I think it's important. The call to be ready for every good deed is a call to live in such a way that the fruit of the new life in Christ is manifested in tangible ways. All right. So whether you, whether whether it's the verses that we're talking about in in Titus two chapter two or these in Titus three, that these characteristics are things that are that are to not be put on like a jacket externally, but are to flow from our hearts. That flow from the new life. Anybody can can put something on externally. Anybody can can fake certain actions, but it's when those actions flow from the converted heart that makes a bigger statement and a true statement that shows people that that God is alive. They may never they may never people may never admit it to you, but when they see your transformed life, you living a different way for Christ, they they take notice that there is a God and, and those uh, details um, will be brought to their attention by God when he confronts them at the end if they, if they don't ever uh, turn to him. So know that God uses us in, the, in this way in evangelizing others by manifesting his life through us. And, and notice that the immediate context for this is what? Paul says what? Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Notice the context. Right? We must remember that that what we're taught in the first part of this verse. These are these are general habits that must characterize characterize our lives as Christians, and and realize that that this verse is telling us that we are to pursue those good works in part in the realm of our civil government or the, the civic arena 
We must be ready to do whatever God would have us to do in the civic arena, to pursue those good deeds in the civic arena, uh, principally to be subject to and to be obedient to. But certainly those verses don't encompass everything. These are Those are just telling. Um, Diebne Hebert explains, explains that this, this verse is telling us that as good citizens, believers must also be ready to do whatever is good, prepared and willing to participate in activities that promote the welfare of the community. They must not stand coldly aloof from praiseworthy enterprises of government, but show good public spirit, thus proving that Christianity is a constructive force in society. Another commentator, I. Howard Marshall, concludes that believers are to fulfill the role of good citizens. And though he certainly doesn't limit this application of good deeds just to just to the civic arena, we, we do need to see that it does include that. We, we must see that in pursuing every good work is found in a sentence that, that uh, talks about being subject to and obedient to the government. But it doesn't end there because it flows. It, it, then that sentence, both in English and in Greek, flows uh, from verse 1 into verse 2 where we see to, 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 we're to malign no one and we're to be uh, peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. So in, in, a, in a sense, this, um, this command to be ready for every good work is sort of like a, it's like a hinge. It's looking, it's looking backward and saying, apply it there, but it's also looking forward, applying it in a general sense to everyone around us, particularly unbelievers around us. So emphasizing our responsibility to be eager to do good works to the world of unbelievers around us, John MacArthur explains, I just quote him here, Paul is not speaking of reluctantly doing what we know we should do in society, but of willing and sincerely being ready and prepared to perform every good deed toward the people around us that we have opportunity to do. He is referring to a sincere, loving eagerness to serve others. No matter how hostile the society around us may be, we are to be good to the people in it whose lives intersect with ours. We are to be known for what might be described as consistent, aggressive goodness, done not simply out of duty, but out of love for our Lord and for other people. The lives of believers should continually demonstrate the spiritual transformation they have received through faith in Christ Jesus. So, beloved, understand, we are to be ready for every good work the Lord does. You know, remember that he's the one preparing um, that good work. He's the one who saved you and put you on that path. He puts that good work in front of you and he supplies you everything you need to to meet that good work. Right? Whether that good work is is helping someone, um, you know, uh, with a, a jacket or it's helping them understand the gospel all of that is included it's a very general very broad term i should say so that's the the, that the third healthy habit that must characterize our response to and interactions with the world around us that is we're to be ready for every good work fourthly we are to see that we're not to malign anyone don't malign anyone don't malign anyone the command is really to malign no one. And the word malign is a translation of the, of the Greek word blasphemeo. Blasphemeo. Now, why do I mention a Greek word? It's because it would sound similar to an English word, which you would recognize as blasphemy. Right? And that's where the English word comes from, is from this particular Greek word. So to malign, you could say, means to blasphemy. And, and the command not to malign anyone is a command not to blaspheme anyone. And yet we, we usually don't use the word blasphemy. We talk about just individuals uh, on, on a human level. We usually re- use that word when we talk about inappropriate speech about God. And that's where we usually are more accustomed to hearing the word blasphemy. Um, that's why most English translations typically reserve the word blasphemy for context related to God or to God's word. Just some examples here from 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says this, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keep faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwrecked in regard to their faith. Among these are Himanus, 
and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Okay, so um, a case of church discipline in which we don't have a lot of details on. But Paul is, is saying that these were handed over to Satan, handed uh, that is outside the realm of the church, in order that it be taught not to blaspheme. Blasphemy, not only God, but blaspheming God's word, that they would be um, obedient to God's word. In James 2, verses 6 and 7, we read this, But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you to court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? So there James is confronting the hypocrisy, uh, a partiality, sin of partiality and honoring the rich and neglecting the poor, all the while the rich in this case were the ones who were blaspheming God. So that uh, denigrating his name. We, we see this uh, in another verse in Revelation 13, verses 5 to 6, which tell us that, that um, and this is speaking of, of the dragon that is yet to come, that serves uh, uh, Antichrist that serves uh, Satan. And there was given him a mouth to speak arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blasphemy his name, his tabernacle, that is those who dwell in heaven. So if you, you know, if we don't hear anything else, if this if the message ends right here, hear this. God doesn't want us to speak like Satan like the the false prophet and like the dragon that comes at the end speaks. So when we malign someone, that's the same thing Satan does about God. So we're acting more like the enemy of God rather than like the child of God when we malign people. Now, this word blasphemy in in Greek, um, there are exceptions in our English Bible where it's not translated blasphemy and i'll just read a few of these because they help us understand the the full meaning of the word blasphemy in first timothy 6 1 we're told first timothy 6 1 that all who live under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of god and our doctrine will not be spoken against that, that phrase spoken against is the word blasphemy in other words paul there is 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 telling timothy that to teach slaves that they must regard their masters as worthy of all honor, not because the the master is as honorable or even is good, but so that the name of our God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. In other words, if if you live, if you are a slave at that time, and you lived in a way that you disdained your master, that you did not work well for him, and whatever chance you could, you stole things. Whatever chance you could, you you avoided work, and you, you avoided work except when the master was there. You'd be just like every other slave. There'd be no transformation in your life. But when a slave who was formerly rebellious or formerly lazy or formerly disrespectful becomes a hard worker, becomes one who honors his master, one become one who even works hard even when the master is not there, who becomes trustworthy, that that slave then becomes a vessel that's useful to the master for these good works that demonstrate the, the life of God within us. Another text, one that we just uh, went through not too long ago in Titus 2, verses 3 to 5. So here we see the older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, uh, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. That word dishonored, it's the same Greek word, this word blasphemy. So the idea of blasphemy carries the idea, or maligning, uh, carries the idea of speaking against that person or dishonoring them. And these these two texts help us understand an important reason for obedience to God's word. So God and God's word um, get blamed. They get dishonored. They get spoken against when you and I don't live as God commands us to live. You know, when we when we sin and that sin is either against people or witnessed by others, they blame God and they blame God's word. They blame doctrine. So, for example, when when men don't 
love their wives as Christ has commanded commanded them to, like to to love as Christ loves the church, to live sacrificially. But but when they abuse their wife, even you know, even while claiming the name of Christ, when they live selfishly, when they live like they're uh, Lord of the house and everybody's there to to serve them, they denigrate the word of God, and therefore people look at that even sometimes other Christians, and they blame God's word. That there's something wrong with God's word. Rather than, rather than seeing fault with the person not living up to the word of God, they blame God. They blame God's word. And, and that's why the, it, it, you know, it's so difficult to teach on um, the wife's submission to a husband, the husband's rightful leadership of his wife, because of all these abuses. And then the word of God is denigrated and God himself is denigrated because of this. Remember this, that, be- that, that believing God's word and obedience to God's word go together like hand in glove or like white on rice. You can't separate them. Right? And when I, talk about, when I talk about believing in God, there's the believing unto salvation and then there's the believing where, where you have to wrestle with each individual text to believe it. If there's an area of your life that's in that's really uh, that's not in alignment with God's will, an area of your life that you're disobedient to God, that's an area where you're not believing God's word. So when you when you say you believe, uh, say a section of scripture, but you're not living it, you really don't believe it. That that's what we need to see. So um, that's the fatal one of the fatal. Um, temptations that satan gives us all the time right did god really say right we say we believe eve would have said yeah i believe god but there's that temptation did god really say it it just sneaks in there all the time so we we are to live in in a way that honors our lord and our god by being obedient to his word and and these last two references the one i mentioned in, in timothy and titus uh, help us understand the fuller meaning of the word blasphemy. So to malign or to blaspheme someone means to speak against or to dishonor them. But, and, you, and you do that by saying something that is not true or meant to tear them down. And this is where we, we really need to kind of dig into what the word malign means. The word malign, and again, it's a, it's, it's a synonym with blasphemy, means to verbally abuse someone, to verbally abuse someone. One dictionary explains that to malign means to treat with malice, to show hatred toward, to abuse, to wrong, to injure. It also can mean to speak great evil of, to defame, to slander, to vilify. Don't miss the destructive nature of that word malign. It's a destructive word. And it's inherent when we do this. The word malign is related to the word malignant. Malignant is the word you don't want to hear when you've had a biopsy done. And uh, when you go back to the doctor's office, you want to hear the word benign. That's friendly. It's not going to hurt you. When you hear the word malignant, that's bad news, isn't it? Well, the word malign, just associate it in your mind so you avoid it. Malign, malignant. Right? Malign intends evil. It intends destruction. Right? So when you malign someone, you're seeking to do harm to them. You're seeking to inflict suffering upon them. You're seeking to cause them distress. The Legacy Standard Bible uses the word slander in Titus 3.2. Again, it's, at the very, it's a synonym. It's very similar to malign with some slight um, shades of, of meaning difference uh, in the English text. To slander means to say something scandalous about someone. To say something scandalous. One di- English dictionary explains that in a general sense, to slander means to defame, to injure by maliciously uttering a false report, to tarnish or impair the reputation of by false tales maliciously told or propagated. Or it means to bring discredit or shame upon one's acts. And all this is done uh, with evil intent to, to bring that person down. And normally when we malign people, it's it we're, we're tearing them down to do what to make ourselves feel better that's what's going on we we think we're so much better than they are and we tear them down now this this is where we have to really just get the context 
this is talking about not maligning anyone. I mean, it's clear, right? Malign no one. So your neighbor, um, your brother or sister, if you're in a family, um, your wife, your husband, your coworker, your boss, the policeman who pulls you over um, and gives you a ticket, and our governing officials. Notice, just want to state the obvious. Paul says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, ready for every good work, to malign no one. And the word malign there plays so close to other commands given to us to be obedient and to be subject to governing officials. We, we have to really just under apply this to our context. Um, the, the context here is that of the governing officials. It, it, it's, not, it's not accidental where it is placed. Understand, beloved, that the scriptures are very clear that when you become a Christian, your speech changes and is to change. God does that in you, and you are also to work and cooperate with him in that change, feeding, this, feeding, feeding yourself on the scriptures so that you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. But just, just as a reminder there, First Peter 2.1, Therefore, putting aside all malice all de- and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, the word slander there is the uh, same in English but different Greek word, but nonetheless you're to put it aside, all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the words so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And there, the, the growing in respect to salvation is then linked to putting aside all the malice, all the deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, all that, all the garbage talk put away. It's to be put away. It's, it's not to be part of our lives anymore. Ephesians 4.31 uh, is another passage that speaks to this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So again, the, the gospel comes into a person's life and transforms them, transforms how they think, transforms how they speak. Now, beloved, thinking about our times, I mean, we're all, all tempted to malign people when they cross us in one way or another, but we are so tempted and often fail to speak the way that God wants us to speak about politicians who are leading the world's revolt against God right now. Right? This, this is not an easy text, but we need to, to come to grips. It's not an easy one to apply. We need to come to grips with it. I mean, our, our world leaders are making decisions that are terrible and are, are drastically, negatively impacting so many lives. There's such a great temptation to become angry and, and to speak in ways against them that do not honor Jesus Christ, our Lord. We need to see that when we malign someone, even a God-denying, lust-pursuing, self-seeking, common-sense-denying politician, we give the enemies of God ammunition to hit him with. So one of the things that I found just always surprising about President Trump is he continually gave his enemies ammunition to hit him with. He would do something or say something that in any other context might be okay. But in that particular context, then his enemies hit him with. They use that to just, just hit him over the head or, again, to impeach him. And, you know, just the, just it went on and on and on. And, and he did this to himself. He gave them ammunition. Let's not do that. Let's not give the enemy ammunition to hit God with. Let's live in such a way where our speech is transformed. We, we must not tolerate maligning even the politicians with the excuse that, well, they're just, they're just terrible. They're, they're horrible. Well, the decisions they are making are terrible. And, and I understand how easily I can simmer. So I understand how easily you can simmer with a mixture of, of righteous and 
unrighteous rage when our government makes stupid decisions that wreck our economy, weaken our defense, encourage lawlessness, destroy God's design for the family, and punish those trying to do what is right. Oh, that's so, so, we're so, so easily angered. And it's even easier if you listen to talk radio, which I do from time to time, and sometimes I wonder why, because the whole point of talk radio is to what? Make you mad, right? Push your buttons, and then you, you, know, you get all fired up, and you want to come back and listen for more. A bunch of people that are, oh, they think that way too, and oh, yeah, that's so bad. Well, it, it is bad. It is bad. But God doesn't want you to respond like a political conservative, right? God wants you to respond like a child of God. And so we must take every thought, every emotion captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ, our Lord, so that we malign no one, that we slander no one. So how do you do that? Well, remembering our Lord is sovereign, praying, asking for his help. Our Lord did this perfectly. Again, just look to your Lord as an example. He did this perfectly. He maligned no one. He slandered no one, even though he, he dealt with a, a really a leaders that made really bad decisions. And then you remember all the Lord has done for you. Remember that you would see none of this, none of the craziness if the Lord hadn't saved you and opened up your eyes. I mean, there are some conservatives who are who are not religious at all. Um, so conservatism and, and being religious or being saved um, can be separated but so that's why you must react so differently. Feed yourself on the scriptures. What scriptures do you feed yourself? Well, turn with me. I would open to Titus. Go to Matthew 5. I'm just going to look at some verses here at the end. Just try to be very applicational. Matthew 5. Look at verses 43. Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So how do you respond? You ask God to help you love. You love those who are, who are doing, making all these crazy decisions and you pray for them. And he says in verse 45 there, he says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's our aim, to represent him, to love your enemy, to love those who don't deserve your love, but you love them, you pray for them because of God's love for you, because God loves them. And because we recognize that at times God raises up leaders and, and allows them to pursue evil things so that he will judge them. Other times he, he brings rulers to know him or to pray for them. Look at, look at Matthew, I mean, uh, Romans 12. Look at Romans 12, verse 14. So you seek to love your enemy. You seek to pray for your enemy, right? It shows that you are a child of God. Romans chapter 12, being at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. So when our leaders make crazy decisions, when they encourage lawlessness, when they reward uh, what's evil and punish what is good, 
we we respond in this in this pattern we we pray for them we seek to love them we seek to provide the things that they need why because it's totally unexpected they're they're expecting you to be against them if you just rail against them like the political conservative that that doesn't speak for Christ another passage along these same lines first peter turn to first peter First Peter chapter three, verse eight. First Peter chapter three, verse eight. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, corresponding to that baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. All the powers of the world are subject to Christ. He rules even now and is orchestrating all things according to his perfect plan. And so we have to follow the Lord's pattern, submitting ourselves to his great sovereign care, recognizing that these evil leaders, when they pursue evil things, if they don't turn from those evil things, that the face of the Lord is against them. He will judge them. They will not get away with one single sin, one single atrocity. The Lord will hold them accountable and will bring justice to that in his perfect way and his perfect timing. We need to follow Paul's example. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 12, he says, When we are reviled, we must bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become the scum of the earth, the dregs of all things, even until now. That's how the world's going to view us, because that's how it viewed Christ. That's how they viewed Christ. Don't expect any different. Paul reiterates our attitude in 1 Thessalonians 5.15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Be ready. This is one of those good works you need to be ready for. I need to be ready for. Now, understand that this doesn't mean that we shouldn't speak out against evils that our government does. It doesn't speak out against evils that people are doing. It doesn't mean that we don't address sin as sin. We must do that if we're going to be faithful as Christians and faithful as a church. So there, there there are ways and we must ask God for much wisdom on how to do this, but his word guides us. We must speak out against evil. And speaking out against evil is one of the important prophetic functions that Christians and the church have today. When when you have a family member living in sin, one of the roles God wants you to do is to be a prophetic witness to them. They won't like it, but that's one of your roles, is to lovingly remind them of God's word, that how they're living, they're living in sin. And the church does this individually, the church does this collectively, calling out the sins of the world. I mean, It's one of the functions that John the Baptist was doing. Not only did John the Baptist prepare the way for Jesus, but he was calling out the sins of the the 
the Jewish slash um, Roman uh, leader in Jerusalem. Right? Christians, some Christians today would say, you know, if John the Baptist really hadn't been so politically involved, he might have kept his head. Because right? he lost his head. Why? Because he spoke out against Herod's sin of adultery and, and the unrighteous things that he was doing. We are called to be salt and light of the world. That analogy implies that we have a, the church and Christians have a purifying and enlightening influence on in the world. And when that light comes, the darkness doesn't like it because it exposes their deeds. Right? That's, that's what John 1 tells us of when Christ came. And he is the light. So when we, when we have to speak against these things, when we speak out against evil things done by evil men, we must do so with gentleness and with reverence. Not reverence for the person. Reverence for whom? Reverence for God. Right? We speak so as to, to malign no one. Right? To address sin, yes. To call things out uh, when they do unjust things. To call them out, yes. But we must do so with gentleness and with reverence for God. Think about this, 1 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. And the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may give them repentance, leading to the full knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. God just might use your soft answer, your gentle answer, your, your answer and, and the way that you respond to governing officials to draw some of them to himself, to save them. And so, beloved, we must remember that these things are not easy. It, it's not easy. If, if it were easy, it wouldn't reflect the fact that the, the Holy Spirit is within us. It wouldn't reflect a transformed life. So these things will be difficult but be ready. Be ready. Ask the Lord right, to help you do this. You know, I've had to ask the Lord to, to forgive me many times where I was so fired up about some of the things going on in our country that uh, I'm guilty of this very thing. Not necessarily with my mouth, but in my heart. From where it flows. So God wants us to be a transformed people and that should be reflected by how we speak uh, particularly against those who are who um, deny God and are leading the revolt against God but we are to malign no one and next week we will look at the rest of, of verse 2 of Titus 3 and to see also that we're to be peaceable gentle and showing consideration for all men and remember beloved this isn't a call to weakness this is going to require great strength. That's why I say you can't do it on your own. It demonstrates the power of God. How can you forgive and love someone who's trying to destroy everything you hold dear in your life? Only by the power of God. That's it. To God and to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Our Lord, we... We want to just confess what you know, Lord, that we often fail this, if not in our words, in our heart, or we have maligned. And we haven't been ready for every good work. We've allowed ourselves um, to get all spun up, perhaps too connected and too involved with the here and now, not focusing enough on eternity, on the kingdom yet to come. Oh, God, help us to, to keep our eyes, to get our eyes on you and on what you are doing so that when these events that come and they will continue to come, Lord, that humanly speaking would just enrage us. May we pray for these leaders as you want us to, that they would come to repentance and a full knowledge of the truth, that perhaps, Lord, you would Release them from the snare of the devil, having been held captive to do to do to, to him to do his will. 
Oh God, help us to be ambassadors of the gospel, ambassadors of mercy, emissaries of, of grace, of God's grace. Lord, your grace is so abundant. And Lord, if we just reflect on who we were before Christ, at least those who were saved at a, a later age, Lord, we, we know that there's just, we would be like this. We would malign people. And, and we would be pursuing our own agenda, not yours. And we wouldn't be ready for every good work. That's not, not the way that, not, not good as you define it. But Lord, just change our hearts, change our thoughts and attitudes, and just help us to respond to the world around us in ways that bring glory to your name. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for every, every time that we, we didn't do this and, and where your, your name was defamed, where you were blasphemed by our life or by the things that we said. Oh God, please just help us to, to live our lives in such a way where you are glorified, where you are honored. Lord, even if people, we don't see how, uh, how people respond to that. Lord, may we just live this way for your glory and for your honor. Please help us, God. We can't do this on our own. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.